Um, that's okay. One time, uh, the church I pastored for a lot of years, we had uh, uh, one of the musicians was going to do a really neat song to set the sermon. And I jumped up there and Doug came in right behind me and tapped me on the shoulder <laughs> and said, sit down, it's my turn. So, I hope you will be uh, availing yourself of some of the nifty things going on here. I like that starting point idea because it's really true that sometimes when maybe we've just grown up in the church and... Faith really never became our own. This is a good opportunity to check into that. I like what one uh, Bible teacher said, that belief sticks to us easily. Belief just sticks to us like lint to a black coat. But faith is something that God himself generates. I want to take a minute here and explain some of these gizmos up here as we've been uh, looking into aligning ourselves with God's agenda. Uh, we've got a plumb bob here. This is pretty big. Uh, uh, contrary to popular opinion, it's not borrowed from NASA. Um, but a plumb bob is, is the most ancient of building tools to get something straight. It's low-tech, but it's extremely accurate. And God has given us his word so that we might align ourselves with his agenda in building a, a good and healthy, solid church. And then these good gizmos here, the uh, framing square and the level, a couple other reminders to us that uh, we always need to check our alignment, uh, see that things are straight and square, and then as a little fun illustration, we've got the Jenga up here. Um, any of you ever played Jenga? Oh, yeah. Well, if you ever play it again, I want you to be reminded that God wants us to keep our life and our church lined up in balance so that things don't just come apart. We've got a Jenga set out there on the guest services desk, and if you want to stop and play with it, okay, just put the pieces back when you're done, all right? So I hope that'll be a, just a, a simple visual reminder to you. I would like to invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles now uh, to the book of Titus as we press on in uh, this subject of a healthy church. We started a couple weeks ago and... Um, as we move into this section on the characteristics of godly leaders, I want you to hear what God has to say, to hear this from two sources in his word. First in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. 
For this reason, I left you in Crete. Uh, Crete, you'll recall, is a little island just off in the Mediterranean, just south of Greece. Paul says, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now look back at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have another section of instructions, the qualifications that God wants us to look for in church leadership. This is 1 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 1. It's a trustworthy statement. Now, what he's emphasizing here is you can count on this. This is, this is true, and we need to pay attention. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach or the snare of the devil. Now, as we look at these standards that God gives us, one of the wonderful things is that they are observable. These are character issues, but we can pay attention if we just... Just watch. I like what uh, the Yogi Berra, one of my famous philosophers, once said, you can make a lot of observations if you just watch. Well, in uh, looking for God's leaders that God is raising up in our fellowship, we need to keep these things in mind. Now, as the uh, congregation and the church is deliberately moving to a form of governance that we call elder-led, congregation affirmed, uh, do not mistake this for elder rule. That's very different. That's really top-down. It's uh, uh, more of a uh, corporate management style and so forth. But elder-led and congregation affirmed means that you as the congregation are part of identifying and uh, setting aside the elders, the leaders that God wants in his church. Elder-led congregation affirmed also means that good eldering 
connects with the congregation, gets input. But the, the elders, the group of leadership, are the ones that are responsible ultimately to prayerfully seek the mind of Christ and make important decisions as the church moves along. And so this matter of uh, having the right leaders is of paramount importance. There are some key terms as we uh, look at the characteristics of godly steward leaders that I want to point out to you. So if you have your note taker, get ready to write, and we'll try to cruise right along through this. Here are some key terms of which we need to be aware. Elder, overseer, and pastor are essentially referring to the same men. Now, sometimes we'd use the word pastor to describe a person who is overseeing a particular ministry. But we don't want to confuse that with with, uh, the view of pastor that includes it as part of elder, uh, uh, presbyter, the overseer, uh, and the pastor. We might put it like this. Elder emphasizes the maturity that's incumbent. A person who has experience in life as well as experience in the faith. Overseer refers more to the responsibility given to really be on the lookout. It doesn't mean to overlook, it means to oversee. Overseers, church leaders need to know what's going on. And that's why a coordinated working together of the various ministries of the church is part of the leadership responsibility. And Lord willing, we'll be working a little more on that in days to come. And then pastor has to do with the primary duties of these men. They are to feed and lead and protect and nurture and care for the flock among which uh, they are placed by God. Now, one of the key terms that we keep running into as we read these lists in Scripture is he must uh, be above reproach. Is this man blameless? Is he innocent? Is he above reproach? And there are three general areas that we should take a serious look at. His family life, his public life, that is, out and about when he's not doing church stuff at work and in the marketplace, wherever. And then is he a person who is mature and continuing to mature in Christian character? And I want you to catch this connection. The faith that we proclaim in the gospel of Jesus Christ is about transformation. It's way more than getting your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven when you die. In fact, that's uh, sometimes accurately referred to as the minimum requirements to go to heaven. The faith that Jesus offers us is a transforming power working of God. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. In cooperation with the Holy Spirit, we begin to respond to the word of God and transformation must happen. And I need to remind you, if you have a faith that is not changing your life, you have a faith that's not saving your soul. So be clear on this, that there is a change that comes 
as we enter into this personal relationship with the living God, our Creator and Redeemer. And so it's good to ask, uh, I like this uh, word out of the New King James, is this guy blameless? Above reproach means that if an accusation is thrown at him, it's going to make it really hard for it to stick. Blameless just means any person in their right mind wouldn't throw a charge at him, okay? In other words, a person is above reproach, blameless, and they are a life of innocence when it comes to living right and wrong, living ethically according to God's standards. Now let's take a closer look at each of these uh, three categories. In the family life, he is to be the husband to his wife. A lot of ink has been spilled, a lot of grief has been uh, foisted upon people down through Christian history over this issue. Early on, there was a view that if a godly man, uh, his wife passed away, that he should never marry again. That was it. That's just the way they took this. One wife only, and that's it. Other views said, well, if a, if a wife dies, a husband may take another wife. And so that was a view that was held and is still held today. Some people say, well, no, it's only one wife, and uh, if you've been divorced or married again, you're ruled out. Well, you know, there are a lot of things that go into these messy things that we get into as fallen creatures. The key thing is what has this person experienced of the redeeming grace of God in the new marriage? And here's where I believe that the New Testament instructions here in, in Titus as well as in Timothy really drive home this point. It's not about the number of wives. It's about do you husband your wife? There's a big difference in just talking about a number. The emphasis here is does he husband his wife? That's it described for us, for instance, in Ephesians 5. And I like it that God gives us a, a good instruction because if uh, I don't know about you guys, but if I had to make up my own recipe for being a good husband, it would be pretty self-centered. And that's the way the world usually cooks it up. God wants us to husband our wife like Christ husbands the church. He loves the church, gave himself for it. He spends his uh, energies and his lavish resources cleansing us with a washing of water by the word, a beautifying us. One of the things that I believe is the high calling of a, of, a, of a man of God who is married. His high calling is to bring out the beauties in his wife that God has put there. Now that's a pretty big challenge. Um, I'm still working at it. But you know, I, uh, the more I've worked with Cheryl and she's been very patient, gracious toward me for over 52 years, uh, I'm just astounded at her beauty and that she would in the first place have taken up with me anyway. But the high calling of God, don't miss this, men, 
is to bring out the beauties of Christ that are resident in her as a believer. That's why in, there in Ephesians 5, about verse 21, he says uh, to be subject one to another. He's talking to husbands and wives. Uh, be subject one to another out of reverence for Christ. That means when Christ lives in your wife, you honor Christ as you honor her. Christ living in your husband means that you honor Christ when you reverence your husband as God instructs. You see, this is a wonderful thing to make God visible to people who need to know him. Well, let's move on here. Not only must he husband his wife, he must disciple his children. Parents, bring your children up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. In other words, parents are given the responsibility to take these children that God has entrusted to them through, through uh, regular uh, natural birth or through adoption. Our responsibility is to disciple them toward the Lord Jesus. And that's a huge task, but that's what God has called us to do. And so be sure that uh, the leaders in your church uh, know how to disciple their children. In Timothy's rendition, it, uh, says, it speaks to the way that a man disciplines his children. And the emphasis is not on the behavior of the kids. The emphasis is on the behavior of the dad as he corrects his kids, as he gives them instruction and keeps them lined out in the right way. Here we are told in, in this passage that the uh, children are uh, not to be accused of dissipation or rebellion. That word dissipation is the same word. It, it's used in... Uh, Luke chapter 15, when Jesus was giving the account of the prodigal son. You remember how the prodigal took his wealth, his inheritance, which in itself was a horrible insult that he committed against his dad. He took all of that and went off to another place and just squandered it all. Just squandered it. Now this is what God wants parents, especially dads, to train their children in the right use of material resources. They're not just to squander. They're to use for the blessing of others. That's why God gives us resources as he does. So children should not be wasters of money. They should not be characterized as having a, a constant undercurrent of rebellion. They need to learn to respond to legitimate authority in appropriate ways. And I believe that one of the biggest things that parents can teach their children uh, coming on up into junior high school is to teach your children how to recognize legitimate authority. Who is it that ought to be allowed to speak into their life and give them directions? As far as I know, there are four main lines of authority that all come from the Lord Jesus, who said, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And then the authority structures that you'll find very clearly in Scripture are the family, uh, the structure of authority within the local church, structure of authority within governments. We are told to obey the government. And then there are authority issues uh, in the workplace, 
And those are things to which we need to learn to be alert and to teach our children that so that they don't be, uh, become misled by false and pretender authorities that are supposed to so, uh, supposedly know how to live life. Then he needs to be a leader in his home. This has to do with taking the responsibility to make tough decisions and also enjoying when you get to make a good decision. The primary uh, decision-making responsibility rests with the husband. Now, a wise husband consults his wife because, uh, guys, believe it or not, your wife is going to have insights that totally escape you. Uh, God has given them great wisdom, and we're much the better if we seek their advice and interact. But ultimately, the responsibility for decisions and the consequences rest upon the man as the leader of the home. Then he must be a steward of God's possessions. It's interesting how managing a home prepares one for leadership in a local church. In fact, that's a connection that's mentioned in Timothy. If a man can't manage his own household, how can you trust him to manage the church of God? So he needs to be a steward. A steward, as you know, is one who uh, very wisely and very honestly takes care of the possessions of another. And all that we have, if you think about it, comes from God. I love this question that Paul asked to the church at Corinthian, in Corinth in the Corinthian letters. He said, now, what do you have that you have not received? Have you come up with anything? If you really think about that, we have nothing but what it has been given to us. And so we can steward these things as unto the Lord and look for his, uh, ter- uh, his term of approval. Well done, good and faithful servant. Then a godly leader, uh, there are some lists of things that emphasize what he is not uh, before emphasizing some things that he should be. In his public life, he is not self-willed. That means he's not arrogant, uh, not aloof. Uh, He's willing to interact with people as an equal. One of the characteristics that the Greek philosophers distilled in trying to define some of these terms is it's a person who always treats others with disrespect because he's sure that he is the one that has the one right way to do any and everything. We say, this person, it's my way or the highway. Well, godly leaders are willing to interact with others and not be self-willed, not be so arrogant as to think that I'm the only one that knows the right way here. Uh, You must not be quick-tempered Quick-tempered is uh, best illustrated, to my thinking, by a tea kettle that's been put on to boil, and it begins to whistle, you know, you hear that little... You go back in there and turn the fire down under it, and it quits boiling. But all it takes is a little tweak on that 
control on the stove and it's ready to go. And if you don't watch it, it'll start spitting water out of the spout. Well, this is descriptive of a person who is always right on the edge of blowing up. It doesn't take much, but uh, once they blow, it's like a steam explosion. Then they must not be addicted to wine. Uh, We could just render this as not an alcoholic. Alcohol is available in a lot of different uh, ways and sources today, and it's real tragic that it's such a destructive influence in our culture and in other places in the world. But God wants people who can practice moderation. If you use alcohol, do not become uh, controlled by it. Do not become enslaved to it. It's also descriptive here, this word. uh, Sometimes it was used uh, by the uh, secular Greek writers to describe a person who just kind of was always a little bit tipsy. They never quite lined up straight. They were just always acting as if they were on the edge of being drunk, even though they might not have been. Uh, They just didn't have the kind of self-control that accompanies um, a godly man. They must not be violent. Um, I really like this word pugnacious. Uh, That's a good word. You know the uh, little dogs called pugs? Got that? They looked like they were running fast and hit a fence post and got left with that face. Well, they were deliberately bred to be fighters. And this word pug, uh, pugnacious, uh, is the Latin term from which that name for a pug is described. We also get our English word a pugilist, a, a guy that's just ready to put up fists and go at it at a moment's notice. Now, this is different than the quick-tempered man. This is a person who goes around uh, picking fights, just wanting to be disagreeable. I'm not talking about in a a teasing, sort of playful way. If you say white, he'll say, no, it's black. If you say it's rainy, he'll say, no, it's sunny. It's daylight, no, it's dark. On obvious things, they're ready to argue and take an opposite view not just to get at the truth. Sometimes there's ways of looking at things from another angle to better get at the truth. That's not what this kind of a guy is. He's always ready to stir things up into a real argument or have at it fisticuffs. I have personally known a man like that, and uh, uh, my my father-in-law, was that way. And you know, it was uh, really sad uh, because we couldn't go visit them and he missed his grand, grandkids growing up and stuff like that because he's always so ready to fight. And I'm not kidding, he was serious about it. Uh, he would pick up something and come at you. Well, the good news is two weeks before he died, He called me on the phone and he said, uh, well, the doctors told me I don't have long to live. I'm dying of this cancer. And he said, I want to ask you to come and do my funeral. I said, well, sure, I'd be really glad to. He said, I also need to ask you to forgive me for all my years of bitter anger toward you. 
You see, God can transform a person if they'll just let the grace of God in. But boy, you can spread misery a long ways if you harbor this pugnacious character. A person must not be greedy for money and what it can buy. That's a deadly thing. Um, I won't say his name, but some of you probably recall a pastor of a real up-and-coming church who everything just kind of imploded because he got to the point where he would not respond to the elders telling him to back off on wanting to get more money. He had fallen in, fallen prey to a very popular thing that happens to some very good writers. When his book was published, he had a deal with a bunch of people in his church that they would go buy cases and cases of books. Well, they were stuck in a warehouse, but book sales were through the ceiling. He hit the New York bestseller more than once. Well, then that makes the price and the value of his book go up. Publishers are looking for him to make another uh, book and so forth. The sad thing is it's a more or less dishonest way to pump the numbers. And he was drawn into this uh, very unwisely. Colossians chapter 3 warns us that greed is the same as idolatry. It's worshiping something that is not at all worthy of God. Now, the people that inhabited the island of Crete had been known for centuries by the Greek philosophers and people that did commerce with them there in the Mediterranean. They had been known as the kind of people that would do anything to get a monetary advantage. In fact, in Crete, in the culture there of Crete, if a person went and made a transaction and did not come out money ahead, that person was scorned and looked down on. It was the guy had uh, brought disrepute to the island of Crete because he hadn't made a profit on that deal. And they were really serious about this. They would do anything to gain money. And it's very important in looking for church leaders to uh, find out what is the guy's attitude toward money. I remember when I was uh, number, uh, quite a few years ago, I was called by a church down in Austin, Texas, to come and interview for a position in their missions department down there. And I got down there, and we had a really great time of fellowship, and uh, they decided, along with me, that I wasn't the right guy for them. But during the, during the time when I was there, uh, they, they told me they had checked my bank accounts. They had checked my credit history. They knew if I paid my bills on time, all this kind of stuff. Now, was that intrusive? No, they were doing their homework. Because, as you read in Timothy 3 there, we have to have a good reputation with those outside. What is this guy's reputation in the community? What do his neighbors have to say about him? What about the the people in the workplace, uh, the places where he does business? Those are all part of this important assessment of the character of church leaders. Now, here are some things that are more positive. He needs to have a reputation for being hospitable to strangers. Now, we use this term very different than what it was 
uh, why, what it meant in the first century. It is literally, uh, it's a combination of two words that means a lover of strangers. Now, how do you express love to a stranger? Well, it's only by the grace of God in a Christian context. So here's, here's what we're talking about. Now, without getting into a political deal, please just allow me to use a current illustration. Say there's a, a family from Central America that makes it across. They didn't have to deal with the wall. They illegally entered our country. They wind up in Walla Walla, and they're at the end of their rope. They just don't have any resources left. They're on the street, got a couple little kids. Would you take them in? Would you help them out? Would you first demand to see their green card? You see, this is what we're talking about when it means to be hospitable to strangers, people that otherwise you wouldn't necessarily invite over for dinner. But because they're image bearers of God, fallen as they may be, they need care, they need compassion. My oldest son used to work for Northwest Medical Teams. Now it's called Medical Teams International. And a number of years ago, there was a big earthquake in Turkey. It was very devastating. And Matt and the director were over there to assess things on the ground before they called in medical teams to help out. And Matt said one of the extraordinary things, and it just gave him a lot of joy, was that... Christians were inviting Muslim families to come stay with them because their house still happened to be intact. And there were some of those Christian homes that almost had wall-to-wall people. And the Muslim people with whom uh, Matt and the director got to interact uh, through interpreters just said how extraordinary this was. They had always viewed Christians as their enemies and so forth. But here were Christians sharing very limited resources, giving them shelter of whatever they could do, and telling them about their faith in Jesus Christ. And Matt was delighted that some of those former Muslims told how they had come to Christ just because of the hospitality of the Christians that were likewise suffering during that terrible time in the aftermath of the earthquake. So, uh, hospitable to strangers. Then, a lover of what is good. A lover of what is good. It is God himself who is good. And any good thing comes from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shifting shadow. God is always doing good. And sometimes we miss it. But God is the one who not only uh, makes beauty possible, uh, the very goodness that we experience as fallen creatures is all part of God's grace to us. He must be a person who is sober-minded. It means a clear thinker. A person who under pressure manages well. They don't just make a sudden off-the-wall decision that they can be trusted to think clearly, to be self-controlled, to be sensible. 
And then I like this concept of being just. Uh, It's a term that often refers to being righteous, but in human terms, it's recognizable as a person who is fair and impartial when needed. One of the things in church contexts that is not at all rare is there will be a situation where family members are involved. And it's vitally important that church leaders be able to act uh, with justice, with fair, impartial discernment. Then a person who is holy and devout. This means that they have an obvious relationship with God. If somebody were to just observe you and follow you around, would they accuse you of being a Christian? Would there be enough evidence to actually convict you? I remember when we first moved into a new neighborhood, uh, our family, because I was involved at church naturally and everything, every Sunday morning we'd pile in the car and head out to church. Well, later we learned that our neighbors straight across the street uh, were always watching us. Uh, they would, we never saw them peeking through the curtains, but they, they told us they used to do that just to see what we were up to because we had two teenage sons that were uh, quite the characters and we had a lot of fun. But anyway, um, uh, Christine told us that she would say, Dan, Dan, come quick, look, look, there they go. They're getting in their car, they got those books. And Dan said, that must be a Bible. I'll bet those are Christians going to church. Well, yeah. Well, later on, that provided an inroad for more relationship with them. And I could tell you hilarious stories about some of the things that we did in our neighborhood. But uh, Christine eventually came to Christ. And uh, last I talked with Dan, he hadn't given his heart to the Lord Jesus, but he was a lot closer, had a lot better understanding uh, because... uh, people observed that we had at first what they thought was just a religious uh, drift in our lives. No, it was a devotion to the living God, a commitment to his church. Now, the last thing here is self-controlled or self-disciplined. Uh, this is uh, a person who, in their, in their thought life, in their attitudes, in their interactions, relationally, they're self-controlled. This is a a good summary of this godly person that you want in leadership. You also recognize that this is one of the evident works of the Holy Spirit. If you read the the fruit of the Spirit there in Galatians 5, the last one is self-control. That's the work of the Spirit, the transforming grace of God. Now, also be looking for uh, men who are mature in the faith and maturing in the faith. They haven't just got saved 20 years ago and they're still a little baby Christian, but are they growing? Are they becoming uh, full-grown Christians, able to uh, nurture and care for others? Remember, the faith that is given to us in the gospel is transformative. Remember, if it's not transforming your life, it's not saving your soul. So take a careful look at your own relationship to Jesus Christ. Is he living his life in you? If not, invite him to do so. 
<laughs> He'll take you up on it. That's really great. He's really eager to come and dwell with us. This is a man who uh, holds firmly uh, to the Word of God and upholds the Word of God. There are a lot of reasons nowadays floating around to get away from the Scriptures. Um, Some people buy into baseless arguments that the Scriptures are unreliable, when in reality, if you just do a little homework, you'll find that there's more evidence that this is God's book uh, than that Abraham Lincoln was President of the United States. There's solid evidence, so don't ever let anybody uh, try to buffalo you on that. So you hold firmly to the Scriptures because they're trustworthy. It's true and reliable all the way through. This man must likewise be a student of the Scriptures, one who is immersing himself in Scripture, not just studying it so he can compile lists and things like that, But is this a student who is learning to let the scriptures work in his own life? I can tell you, uh, and I've talked with countless pastors who bear witness to this, one of the biggest challenges in preaching the word of God is how often our preaching exceeds our practice. But that doesn't discourage me from pressing on. And it shouldn't discourage you. Maybe you're not all full measure on these things, but are you growing? Are you studying? Are you making a difference in who you are as a Christian because of your knowledge and practice of the Word of God? Then this is a person who is uh, able to teach. That's one of the things that basically uh, differentiates between elders and deacons is the elders are responsible to teach. Now this means not just able to teach, but is this person an able teacher? Can they really explain it? Can they unpack it so you get the meaning? Uh, This is part of what expository preaching is all about. It's to open up the Word of God and expose the truth so that you get it. And that's a, it's a, It's a lot of work, but I'll tell you, it's a delightful work when God calls you to do that. So a person who is able to teach, able to show others how to put it into life, able to exhort. Uh, This is something that sometimes we misunderstand, and we think that exhorting someone means just sort of confronting them. Uh, You're sinning, knock it off. Well, um, I like in our relational disciple training, we recently, just the other night, went through this, uh, what do you engineers call it? Uh, Feedback loop. Here's an engineer, check with him. A feedback loop. Only that's the way that we work with Scripture. The Scriptures are given to give us sound teaching. They're good for teaching. And then if we hit a rough spot and kind of get messed up, uh, the scriptures can confront us. That's good because it says, whoa, you're off the track. But it's not to beat us up. It's to take us on to the realm of correction. The scriptures are good for teaching, for confronting, for rebuke, for correction. 
and then for training in righteousness so that we get back in the way. Now, that's what exhortation is all about. It's, an, it's coming alongside a person and helping them out of getting stuck with a problem of sin in their life. And so a godly elder is able to do that, able to refute and convict or convince false teachers. And this means more than just winning an argument. It means being able to reason with a person from the Scriptures to the point where they either admit they're wrong or say, you know, that's so true, I want in on it. This is a very powerful thing in the world in which we live because there are so many false ideas about spirituality floating around. And it's so important that we know the scriptures have godly men that we can go to uh, to help us when we run into these false teachings. Just as a real quick example, um, a few years ago there was a book that uh, hit the market and man, it went through churches just like that. Uh, the Shack. Many of you have read it. Um, it was a false representation of who God is. And one of the things that I, I talked with one of the guys that was managing a big major bookstore in Portland at the time, and I said, have you read this thing? And he said, oh yeah, isn't it great? And I said, well, they're totally wrong. It's a great story, but it's totally wrong on who God is and who Jesus Christ is, what he's like and how he works in our life. But you know, Christians bought that book by the thousands and passed them out and so forth. We need somebody that can say, whoa, 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 that's... Don't get too carried away. That's a nice story, but its view of God is wrong. And we need to be able to help people to see the difference. Uh, we need to be able to, uh, to show others how to live in obedience to God. Not just tell them do this, but show. This is how you do it. This is the way you live. One of the things that we enjoyed when our boys were uh, younger growing up is in our, the fellowship, our church there, there were other families that had the same worldview of, of the reality of the kingdom of God. And it was wonderful to sit with them and to see how my boys learned from uh, my, my good friend. They learned a lot of things from him that I'd been trying to teach them, but sometimes when another person says it, they get it. You see, these are the kinds of leaders that the church of God needs. You've got a lot of good leadership here. And um, get them on track. Encourage them. Pray for them. Pray for them to be these kinds of men. Uh, some of you men may be uh, sensing a nudging from the Lord God himself uh, to step into this. God says it's a good thing that you desire to do. And so pray going forward that God would uh, grant these kinds of elders. Now, one of the things that, as a pastor, um, I used to rejoice in, but it was always mixed emotions. I would become good friends with a man in our church. He would sense a call to preach, and off he goes somewhere else. 
I'd get to be good friends with uh, another brother. And, uh, our two families would enjoy fellowship, and then he would hear, sense God's call to go to Indonesia. And we didn't hardly ever see him again. But you see, that's part of the way God works. He calls mature, well-prepared, well-equipped men of character to do his work. And that's one reason I'm really happy to, uh, to be praying this morning uh, for John and Aaron uh, before they return to Indonesia. Uh, if you know John, he's not a, he's not a novice, not a rookie uh, in the things of God. Uh, he's able to teach, as many of you have experienced. But they're going into a tough situation there. It's a, it's a situation that you and I uh, would just be flabbergasted if all of a sudden we woke up tomorrow morning and there we were. Probably wouldn't know how to find any breakfast even. But as they go, uh, Pastor Chris and uh, some are going to pray, and you pray along with us as we, again, dedicate uh, one of these kinds of men uh, to the service of the living God. You guys want to come on up? Yeah, come on up here, John and Aaron, and uh, I've asked our board and our missions team to come. If you're on the board or the missions team, come on up here and you can pray right alongside us. And this is your last Sunday here for uh, quite some time, but uh, we are going to send you out with a lot of prayer and with just anticipation of what God is going to do. And uh, I want to share just a brief passage of scripture that uh, I came across that I feel like sets uh, the tone of, of what I'm praying about and, and hopefully what God wants to do. This comes from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, Paul is, is talking to the Corinthians and he says this. He says, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. And Paul goes on, he says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. And it's a, it's a passage that I think gives uh, me a lot of hope, a lot of anticipation. You know, John and Aaron have, have been working and, and working in God's power with a lot of gospel patience about uh, what God wants to do, laying a lot of foundational groundwork, and there's still more of that to, to come, but I, I want to pray over the next days and weeks and months that, that God would, would really, that now would be the day of God's favor for them, for their ministry, that, that, that great things would really begin to emerge as they head back and, and pursue God faithfully and pursue the things that he wants to do in their life. And so that's one of the things that I want us to pray for. Uh, I'll let some of these other uh, leaders pray as well, certainly. And so uh, we're going to lay our hands on them. If you want to put your hand out, uh, as if you're uh, laying your hand on them, then that would be wonderful. Let's pray all together. God, we, uh, we rejoice in you that you have called John and Aaron and their children to, to serve you, to glorify you in this way. And uh, it is with uh, mixed emotions, certainly, that we send them out uh, as if we could 
uh, stop the work that you're doing, Lord, but, uh, but we want to be rejoicing in what you're doing. We want to be uh, looking with anticipation at what you're going to do in their lives and what you're going to do through their lives, Lord, and pray that as they head back to the work that you've called them to, that they would go with a sense of uh, renewed uh, vigor, renewed joy in you, renewed passion for the work that you're doing, Lord. And we want to just commit ourselves to uh, praying for them, to sending them out in uh, in your spirit and and just uh, anticipating the great things that you're going to do, Lord. And uh, we want to just commit them to you this morning, God. Father, I thank you that you have taught them how to look past their own interests and look to the interests of others. And God, we learn that from you. I thank you so much that you have taught them that so much that they left here to go there. And so God, in that, I pray that you would provide for them. You provide for their own interests, that they can look to serving and loving other people and they don't have to worry about finances. They don't have to worry about food. They don't have to worry about security. God, just surround them. Surround them with those needs. God, beyond that, with, uh, with friends, with people who will join with them and partner and not just put the weight on them, but on, the, on just the shared load, people around them. I, I pray that you would um, increasingly press into those friendships and those partnerships that we would see you glorified in these other places. God, we lift these things up to you. We love you. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.